I've been thinking and praying about this sermon for a couple of weeks, and I think that this is a breakthrough day for some people. I think the Lord has shown me that, um, that there's a breakthrough that's available to those of you who listen to what it is that God has to say. These are familiar topics that we'll look at today. We may be looking at them in a different way, but they're very familiar topics. But my sense is that the Spirit of God is at work today to bring home to our hearts old truths in a new way for a fresh breakthrough. In the passage that we're looking at in Luke chapter 20 and verse 9, it says this, Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. So, Jesus is in the temple courts. He is teaching daily in the temple, in Solomon's portico, an area where the rabbis would gather, where people would come having made their offerings, taken part in the worship, where the people would go for instruction and teaching. And Jesus, of course, was the most popular of them all. And in the midst of this environment, there was astounding beauty to behold. You look around you in the temple courts and the white-clad buildings, clad in the most beautiful white marble, are adorned with a particular ornamentation. An ornamentation that refers to the Old Testament image of the people of God. The Old Testament image of the people of God found in Psalm 80, a psalm that calls out to God for restoration. That image in Psalm 80 is of a vine that God takes from Egypt and plants in the land of Canaan. And that image is the ornamentation of the temple courts. And so everywhere that people look, 
they see the image of Israel, the image of a vine. And so on this occasion, Jesus speaks, and as he speaks, the visual aid is all around them. In a few days, he'll say to his disciples, recorded at the very end of John chapter 14, come, let us leave. They've had the last supper together. They've, they've spoken together in the upper room. And now they walk through the streets of Jerusalem toward their campsite in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they go, they have to walk past the temple. And as Jesus is walking past the temple, he says, I am the true vine. Israel is portrayed for the people. And Jesus speaks of a vineyard and of an owner of that vineyard. And he says, the time is coming when God will seek out those tenants for the recompense that is due to them for the treatment of his servants and his son. And the people say, God forbid that this should happen. And then Jesus refers to a psalm, Psalm 118. When you, when you add the Old to the New Testament... And you look for the very middle of the Bible. The middle of the Bible is Psalm 118. And for that reason, the monastics down through the centuries have always used Psalm 118 at the middle of the day. At 12 noon, they would read Psalm 118. And there in Psalm 118, there is this reflection on what it is to be a leader that has been rejected. And in that rejection, God reverses the rejection by, by taking that leader that is rejected and making them the very defining leader for a generation, the cornerstone, the very, the very capital leader, the capstone, capstone and cornerstone are pretty much interchangeable, both in the Greek and the Hebrew image in this word. And Jesus says, so if you don't think these things are going to happen, what do you think that that passage means? There is a stone, there is a rock, there is a dressed masonry that God offers and that men reject. The builders of the people of God reject the one that God offers as the cornerstone. Now, the builders, of course, are the leaders of Israel. And um, as the leaders of Israel, they are the ones who have given, been given the task of constructing. I've left my pen over here. I should pick it up. I plugged it in earlier to make sure that it was properly charged. Now, I think I've told you this before, but I'm going to say it again because there's all kinds of folks who are joining us right now. When Jesus speaks about this, this rock that's been rejected and the builders that have rejected it, there seems to be a narrative that the people at the time would have understood. Outside of the walls of Jerusalem, there was a hill 
And that hill was found to be enormously productive as a source of building stone, of building masonry. And so during the Hasmonean and the period of Herod the Great, right before the time of Jesus, the people who built Jerusalem, they went to this place and they began to dig out a quarry. And the quarry had very steep sides like quarries do. And as they dug into the rock, they used this, this stone for the building of Jerusalem. And then they got to a part of the hill where it really was impossible to use the stone because it was so cracked and fissured. And so as they dug into it, they left this kind of promontory of stone that kind of stuck out. I don't know whether you can, I'm not the greatest artist, but do you see what I'm trying to get at here? Yeah? It's a little bit like Kilroy. Um, Something something for the teenagers. Um, So there's this, there's this, um, there's this quarry that, um, that develops, and it has this promontory sticking out into the, into the quarry. Well, the stone becomes exhausted. It's no longer a, a useful or available for building materials, and the rich of Jerusalem note that this is really quite a delightful environment, and so they begin to plant trees and gardens, and they excavate the family tombs into the quarry face. One of those families was a family from Arimathea. And they would put large stones that would roll over the, over the face of those, of those tombs. And this became a garden cemetery where, where the bodies would be laid and then once the bodies were decomposed, they would take the bones and they would put the bones in a, in a vase and that would be the ossuary of the family. And they'd put them in little niches and they would be used over generations. When the Romans arrived, they looked at this and of course they, they had no regard for the fact that this was the place where the rich people laid their dead to rest, they saw it and they said, wow, this looks like a great amphitheater. And this, this promontory looks like the perfect location for public executions. Because you'll be able to get a crowd around all of it. The rich continue to have their tombs but the Romans had their place of crucifixion. If you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today, of course, the church is built over what used to be this place called Mount Calvary. And inside the building, there is the place where the tomb of Jesus can still be found. And as you climb the stairs to the place where he was crucified, 
there's a glass panel. And when you look through the glass panel, all of the rock is broken and fissured. It's the rock that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone of our faith. The very place of rejection has become the place of crucifixion and salvation. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that really cool? I love stuff like that. And then Jesus goes on to say that, that this, this stone that has been rejected, this, this reality that has been that has been refused is a place of brokenness and crushing. He says, if you'll fall on this stone, if you'll fall on this rock, you'll be broken. But if you don't fall on the rock, you'll be crushed. Of course, Jesus, using the way in which people thought at the time, was suggesting that the works and the words of a person really were indistinguishable from them as a person. And so the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus are indistinguishable from who Jesus is. And he's saying very clearly to the leaders of the people, if you reject my works, and if you reject my words, you're rejecting me. But the stone that is being rejected by you is being used by God as the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is the place of breaking. And the cornerstone is the place of crushing if you will not be broken. So you say, which is better then, the breaking or the crushing? Because it sounds a little bit like devil and deep blue sea. Sounds like a bit of a predicament, doesn't it? Which one would be better? Well, it's interesting, the, the New Testament leaders and the New Testament writers have an experience that gives us an understanding of what it's like to be in one or the other category. The Apostle Paul, when he gives his own testimony of meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, gives us an idea of what leads a person to be crushed. You see, Paul tells us throughout the New Testament that his life was given over to the to the, the radical obedience of legalistic Judaism. He looked at every detail of the law and sought to fulfill it. And as he listened to the Pharisees teach him, it just became a more and more burdensome experience. And then he saw someone who seemed to be completely liberated from the burdens that he carried. He was called Stephen. And as Stephen gave his testimony before the Sanhedrin, Stephen was 
absolutely free from all of the things that, that crushed and burdened him. And like the rest of the Sanhedrin, he gnashed his teeth at Stephen and he hated him. And then Stephen, looking to the heavens, saw Jesus ready to welcome him and told the crowd that, that, that Jesus was ready to welcome him in heaven. And they ran at him and dragged him from the building and killed him by stoning him. And Jesus said, as Paul was nearing Damascus, according to the testimony of Paul himself, Jesus said, it's difficult, isn't it, for you to kick against the goads? It's difficult, isn't it, to kick against the goads? Paul was trying to live a life where he was, where he was somehow aspiring to, to function in a world of approval and affirmation given to him by others if he fulfilled the religious observances of the community that he lived in. He got affirmation for being legalistically pure and got no affirmation for making any mistake at all. And many days, he found himself feeling awesome because he got everything right. I wonder how many of you have lived with the burden of having to live up to the standards that you've been given. Maybe you've been raised in a religious home and there were expectations placed upon you and there were, there were standards given that you found difficult to meet. Maybe, maybe you found yourself in a congregation where, where legal requirements were placed upon you, that you had to dress in a certain way, speak in a certain way, function and act in a certain way, that there were particular gender roles that you were required to fulfill even though they seemed foolish and silly. Perhaps the only way that you could receive affirmation was that you somehow lived up to those religious standards. And some days you felt great, and other days you felt crushed under the weight of expectation. It's a funny thing, isn't it? So many of us find ourselves trapped in this cycle of being the super-Christian. Have you noticed that? We kind of start off kind of deflated. And then we remind ourselves that we've had a, we've had a quiet time every day this week. So we're able to pump ourselves up a little bit. And then we remember that we've memorized lots of verses of the Bible. (laughs) 
And then we remember how effective our prophecy is in the lives of other people. Now, we amongst a few others are described as the super-Christians, able to outrun a speeding sinner, to catch a fast-moving Calvinist in our teeth. We are the super-Christians. And then, the goads come along, and they puncture our pride. And there's this strange sound that you hear throughout Christendom. You were angry, and you had nothing that you could do to stop your anger. Quick! Be angry, but do not sin. Amen. Because now you're not only angry, now you're anxious. Be anxious for nothing. (laughs) The anger the anxiety, the addictions, they get you. Maybe you remember an old song. We will shout to the north and the south. Sing to the east and the west. And just for a moment, you look like one of those things outside of the car dealership. Jesus is Savior to all, Lord of heaven and earth. But then, you see, you see, it's such a common experience. That's why you're smiling, but you're not really laughing. Because it's a little bit too close to home, isn't it? How often do we find ourselves crushed by, by the weight of the word that we carry? What's the solution? Our middle daughter, I think you've only met her very briefly. She lives in England. She had a really interesting experience with all of this. She went to um, university in England, and um, it was a great university. She got great grades to go to that university, 
She got an amazing place to study at that university. It was the thing that she wanted to do. And um, like many young people going to university, she decided that she would kind of experiment with a few things, and it all seemed rather harmless and fun, and then it was slightly less harmless and slightly less fun. And, and, and what she discovered was that her experimentation became more and more troublesome to her to the point where she really wasn't able to continue. She had mono. She was exhausted. She was daily beset by anxieties and fears. And she called me one day and she said, Daddy, can I come home? And I said, what about your degree? She said, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. And she explained what was going on. And she said, I've, I've talked to Jesus and I've just said, I can't do it anymore. And so she got on a plane. She was in England. We were in Arizona. She got on a plane. And here's the amazing testimony. That as she threw herself on the rock and was broken... A bit like this bowl that I have here. Broken, really fundamentally broken. What she found was that Jesus has really big hands and that he can hold together the broken pieces of our life if we come to him in brokenness. And he's able to carry us in our brokenness, which is so much better than being crushed. Paul says, I, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. I find that there is this law at work in me where my mind wants to do one thing, but my body does another. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he paid for it. Not so that we could be crushed by it, but so that we could recognize our brokenness in it. And in recognizing our brokenness, come to him and let him hold us together in his big hands. So is the brokenness anger? Is it anxiety? Is it, is it that addiction of what you see or what you taste or what you feel that seems to have come unbidden in this time of crisis and chaos? What is it that causes you 
to hide, but makes you feel like you're liable to be crushed. What is it? Only you and God can know. And you can do one of two things, says Jesus. You can be crushed or you can be broken. It's not a rock and a hard place. It's the rock or the wrong place. And the rock means being broken. The rock means throwing yourself with all your weakness and your inability, your anger, your anxiety, your, your addictions right there at the foot of the cross. At that place of rejection. Right there in the shadow of our salvation that was the place of rejection where Jesus took the rejection for us. Right there we say, Jesus, I can't do it. I'm incapable. I know that my whole life has been defined by being capable, by being competent, by being somebody, but I can't be any of those things. Because without you, I can't hold it together even. And at that moment, everything changes. Because at that moment, the brokenness becomes the breakthrough. Paul puts it like this. Having given testimony to all the ways in which he strove to be legalistically pure, he described how God brought him to a place of brokenness by giving him something that was unassailable and impossible to remove his thorn in the flesh. And with that thorn in the flesh, the Lord said, I'm not going to take it away. I'm not going to remove it. Because my grace is enough for you, Paul. It's not about you getting it back together. It's not about you beating the opposition. It's not about you winning. It's about you being the vessel of my power. And the only means by which you can be the vessel of my power is that you know it's all grace and none of you. And so my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is enough for you, says the Lord. For my power is made perfect in your uncontrollable anger. My power is made perfect in your anxiety. My power is made perfect in your addiction. Come on. That's ridiculous. How is that possible? Well, ask an addict. Because that's the journey of their life. And if only we knew it, most of us are addicts. 
I'm Mike, and I'm an addict. Just like you. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you, Mike. For my power is made perfect. Now, how is it made perfect in the things that cause me weakness? Simply because we place them into the hands of God himself. Simply because the things that cause us to stumble are not something that we seek to overcome. We become overcomers because he makes us an overcomer because we put things into his hands and he is the overcomer who then overcomes in us and through us. We're not overcomers in ourselves. Try it and you'll be crushed by it. Crushed. The life will be lost from you. But if, dear friend, at home, online, in-house, wherever you are, if you will come and be broken and say, Jesus, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is how I think. This is, this is, this is me. He says, I'm so glad because now I've got another one that I can use. Because he can't use the other kind of folk, the other kind of person that's trying to hold it all together and do the right thing. That, that's not going to be the person he can work through because they're just trying to do their own work. And it may be a good thing, but it's not his work. If you want his work, you need to be in his hands. And to be in his hands means to be broken. And so we choose that path. And it changes everything. There's an old story, and I'll finish with this. There's an old story. I, I may have told you it before, but all good stories are worth repeating. It comes from India. It's of the water carrier whose life was defined by carrying water. And he would, he would carry a bar across his shoulder and he would have two pots, one on each end of the bar across his shoulder. And he would go to the well and he would pick up the water and he would go back to the house and bring water to the master's house. But one of the pots was cracked and broken and the other one was, was whole and, and complete. And the pot that was whole and complete spoke, spoke down to the other pot and said, I'm, I'm so much better than you. I carry so much more water than you do. I'm so much more useful to the master and to the water carrier. You're nothing in comparison with me. And the broken pot would feel terrible every day. Until one day, the water carrier said to the broken pot, have you noticed the path that we walk on? And the broken pot said, what do you mean? He said, 
Have you noticed that on one side of the path, the flowers grow? And on the other, there's only dry, dusty earth. He says, all of those leakages from you, from your brokenness, are giving not only water to the master's house, but flowers for his table, because you water our way. You see, God has a way of working between now and glory when we're all remade anew. And his way of working is through people like me, and maybe you, who are broken. And the people that he can work through the best are the people who recognize that they're broken and throw themselves on the rock and say, Jesus, I can't do any of these things without you. I don't know how to understand the Bible. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to remember verses. I don't know how to be helpful to other people. I I don't know how to share my faith. I I don't know how to do anything. Jesus, help me. And they're the people who Jesus is made manifest in most clearly. Today is a day of breakthrough for you who recognize that it's a day of recognizing your brokenness. So during this song, Danny's going to come with the band. During this song, if you're online, I'd encourage you to go to the link that takes you to the Zoom room. Chad's going to be there to welcome you, and members of the prayer team are going to be there too. We'll have breakouts, and we'll work out how to do it best. This is our first time of trying it, so you may have to be patient with us. And if you're in-house here today, with the few of us that there are, we've set aside an area that's been properly cleansed and properly set aside, and we put these two signs up. There are three pews that you can sit in. And the prayer team will come and pray with you at the end of the song. But you've got to make your way there. And it may be that walking there is a difficult walk for you. Because it's a walk of brokenness. But my encouragement to you is that the walk of brokenness is the journey of breakthrough. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you make so clear to us the way of the gospel. You make clear to us the way of the good news. Lord, thank you that you are the good news, that your words and your ways, Lord, are the means of eternal life. Lord, we don't want to wait for glory in the future. We want a touch of glory today. We don't want to wait, Lord, for the future when you return again. We want, Lord, your kingdom to come and your will to be done today in us.
And so, Lord, we ask you for a breakthrough. We pray, Lord, that in our brokenness, you would give us a breakthrough today. And I pray for my sisters and brothers, Lord, in whatever it is that prompts them to realize that they're broken, that they'd simply come and put that into your hands and find you capable of carrying it. Thank you, Lord, for your wounded hands that mean our hearts can be healed. And we thank you, Jesus, in your strong name. And all God's people say,